So I'd encourage you to have um, the chapter in front of you. It's chapter 5, and we're looking at verse 12 through to verse 28, right through to the end. Um, if you take notes, that might be useful because we're going to be going through this in chunks. Hopefully that will be useful, um, and there's a reason for that. But we're looking at First Thessalonians uh, chapter um, 5. Maybe if we'll just read that. That's what it says here. It says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for that is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Straightforward enough, eh? Matt, over to you again. Uh, we are thinking about this letter, which is one of the first letters that, were, that was written by Paul. And the context is, is that he's writing it to a church in Thessalonica. If you want to know where this history is, it's in Acts chapter 16, chapter 17. Paul is focusing his work in Asia. And there is a vision of a man from Macedonia. And he says, come and minister to us. And so Paul obeys this prompting of the Spirit. And they go and they find churches, the first main churches in mainland Europe. It's quite significant. So Paul finds a church in Thessalonica and immediately it all kicks off. There's persecution, there's violence, there's arrests. And so he flees to a place called Berea from Berea. He goes to Athens and from Athens to Corinth. And it's here that he's writing this very letter to the church that he's left behind in Thessalonica. And the thing that's really important to know, especially for, for this last bit of the chapter, but throughout the entirety of the chapter, is that the church in Thessalonica is a really young church. I'm not just talking about the hip and trendy kind of um, hipster brigade. Um, this is a really fresh as a daisy Christian church. There have been, they've become Christians from a pagan background with a bit of interest in Judaism. They've become Christians in a matter of months. And now this is the church that's been left behind in a place of persecution and opposition. And what we find out at the beginning of the chapter are being faithful in spite of that persecution to the point that they are a model church exemplified, exemplifying how to be a church to many, many others in the area. But they are still a young church, really young. And they are not perfect, far from it. They are still learning. And we may feel that we've been in church a long time. We may feel that this church has been here for over 150 years. The church in its entirety has been here for 2,000 years, but actually we are still learning. We are still, in one sense, those kind of new believers. So, this is showing you where Thessalonica is. 
There's a phrase that has been used in Christian liturgy for many years. Christ died, Christ is risen, and the next bit is? Let's say that, because that is an affirmation of the sense of the essence of the gospel. Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let's say it again. Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But the thing is, we live here. In the meantime, in the in-between time, in the now but the not yet. And so did the church in Thessalonica. As Lisa uh, expounded last week in the previous part of the chapter, there was the desire for the return of the Lord. There was a sense that it was going to be any time, any time now. And so people were anticipating the return of the Lord. And, and, and maybe sometimes, as Lisa said last week, we need to be a bit more aware that Jesus is on his way back. Be it in 20 seconds or 20 centuries, 20 minutes or 20 months, Jesus will come again. Amen? Amen. He will come again. But what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we wait? Because that's what the question is. This is a congregation in Thessalonica. This is a congregation in Skipton who are going, okay, Jesus is coming back. I'm waiting. <laughs> what do we do? And this chapter, or this part of the chapter, is Paul outlining to this particular congregation, this particular church in Thessalonica, who's being bombarded with persecution, is being faithful, but they're young and they're still learning, but they're expectant of Jesus' return. What's he saying to Skipton today when we are sitting waiting for the Lord's return, even though it hasn't happened in uh, nearly 2,000 years? In the meantime, while you're awaiting, there's a song that we sing here. Um, hello. Let's go back. Okay. I know it's a long sermon, but my goodness. Um, the end. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> it's great to have you back, Peter, after his operation as a guys. I say that in love because you've messed up my PowerPoint. Um, we are living in the meantime, although the Lord's coming was hurrying up quite quickly there. Okay, can I? Thank you. There we go. We've done that. We've done that bit. We've done that bit. Now we're on that bit. We'll get to that bit in a second. Let's go back a bit. Let's go MOTs. In the meantime, anyway, we sing a song that's written by one of my um, fellow countrymen, Andy Flanagan, and it's called Blessed to Be a Blessing or, or um, Bring Heaven to Earth, Lord. And that is a song which is an anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because um, if you read anything by, um, any stuff by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the things he, he teaches about the coming of the Lord is that our job as church, as the followers of Jesus, is to make this world as close similarity to the oncoming kingdom of God so that when Jesus comes in his glory, there's not much difference to change. That's what, the, that's what our job as the church is, to bring God's kingdom here on earth through his church. But the question is, how do we do that? And that's part of this letter and certainly this chapter. Now, I was going to say, Paul does a rush job at the end of this chapter, but I think the PowerPoint has proved that for me. Um, he's, he's rattling through a whole list of things. Um, it's a little bit like... Um, 
Do you know when you're, when you're doing an exam and you've done an, it's an essay question and you've written two paragraphs of what you're predicting is going to be a five paragraph scorcher that's going to get you full marks and then someone says you've got three minutes left and you go, no! And so what you do is forget paragraphs and you start jotting down bullet points to get everything down for the examiner to see. This is what Paul's doing. He's getting everything down on the page whether it's because he's running out of time, he's running out of parchment or he's running out of ink or the a secretary's running out of patience. I don't know. But he seems to be jotting everything down he wants to get across to you. So there's 17 sermons in one here. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> He's throwing all these things at them. And they seem like a whole big set of rules. Now, has anyone been in the church long enough to have done catechism in Sunday school? Okay, me and Ella are the oldest people in the world. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Catechism was like this little booklet, this shorter catechism that we had in Sunday school. And it had 107 questions in it. And you had to kind of memorize the question and memorize the answer. Of which out of the 107, I remember one. <laughs> which was, what is man's chief end? And man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two, can't remember. Um, but the job was, to, when I was growing up, is that you would learn these questions. In fact, people who were training to become part of the church in the very early days um, were catechumens. They were learning the basics, and you'd have a catechism to learn. And that's what it seems like, a whole pile of rules. But actually, these are not rules that we have to follow. These are not rules that we have to keep. These are a set of rules that will keep us on the way of Jesus. They are not rules for us to keep. They are rules to keep us on the way of Jesus. N.T. Wright, the great Bible scholar, he likens this chapter to, to learning a new language. These, these early Christians were learning a new language, the language of the Christian lifestyle. And the same way as we pick up our, our native tongue from those around us, from our family, our friends, and our situation, we pick up our lifestyle, our, our way of living. So if we are in a supportive family, if we've got good friends that are affirmative and building us up, then more than likely that's the kind of people that we will tend to be. If we've been brought up in a, in a troublesome background, if we've got difficult um, family situation, then we have to fight against that to be different because we only absorb what's around us and we have to learn a new language of being. And that's what Nancy Wright says is what's happening. This, this is a new language. And so they're learning the rules of the language. And if you ever tried to learn, I don't know how many people for English is a second language here, but what a nightmare is this rule. I before E except after C, unless the efficient concierge of the priciest ancient glacier hacienda serves a society of proficient scientists studying a species with insufficient consciousness leading to racier piracies, lunacies. Okay? But we still have it, don't you? Whenever you're writing the word receive, I defy anyone to not go, I do actually go I before E, except after C. Am I right? Yeah, I can tell. We have these rules. No, it doesn't mean if you break that rule, you're damned to an eternity of, I don't know, punctuation or grammar or spelling hell. But it's there to give you direction of how to speak and write this language. Never eat shredded wheat. The points of the compass. I still do that to remember which one's which. You repeat until it becomes natural. It becomes second nature. Now, I've spoken to some friends for whom English, um, they're, they're bilingual, so their first language was Afrikaans. And I said, well, how do, you, how do you work in your head? And they said, well, eventually, you start thinking in the language uh, that you've learned. That's when you're fluent. 
when you think, not going, okay, bread is punk, uh, dog is shen. It's not like that, that it becomes fluent, it becomes natural. We call it second nature, and that's what we're going towards. And that's the whole purpose of this letter. In fact, the whole purpose of the letter is concentrated on a prayer that Paul prays in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 12 to 13. And it's all about sanctification. Now, it's a big, scary word. We don't often talk about it. But essentially, it's about being made holy. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, our prayer for ourselves and for each other here, is that we will be made holy. That is what God's desire for each of us is to be, to be increasingly holy. And that is the driving force behind all of this. And so we're going to look at this chapter. We're going to rattle through the verses. So we'll look at the first section, verses 12 to 13. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work, live in peace with each other. This is all about how we relate in the community of God to leadership. This is kind of awkward to preach. Because I feel like I'm kind of pleading, going, be nice to us. Please like us. <laughs> That's not what Paul's actually getting at. He's saying that there are people who are working amongst you and how to relate to them. Now remember, the context of this is a church that is really brand spanking new. These are really new converts. And the people who have been called into leadership are brand new converts as well. We have some of their names. We have Jason, we have Aristarchus, and we have have Secundus. These are three names that are mentioned in different places in, in Acts. They are chosen from within the community to be the leaders of the community. It's not because they passed an exam or that they knew John 3.16 better than everyone else. It's not because they'd learned their catechism. It's because they'd been anointed and appointed as leaders from within the community. They were on equal footing with everyone else. There was nothing special necessarily about them apart from God's calling upon them to be separated as leaders. It's the same today, especially within our Baptist context. That's how we we send someone for ministry. Catherine's just done it most recently, is that your call may be personal, but is tested by the church, and the church calls you out. And then you go on to a whole ministry settlement thing, but then a church has to call you to be their minister because they're calling you to have that position of leadership. And so... The whole thing is that these people are working hard among you, literally breaking a sweat, working like a farm laborer for you. This is Jesus-like, servant-like leadership. This is not someone who's driving a Porsche with Pastor One on it, okay? And what's the other thing we're asked to do? Ask to admonish you. Anyone here would like to put their hand up to say they'd like a good bit of admonishing? Anyone? I do like it. After me, we typically I like a bit of admonishing. No, we don't like being told off because that's what we think admonishing is. And we think it's like someone pointing a finger and saying, Oi, you, we don't like the idea of church discipline. But actually here is something which says the job of leaders is to admonish people within the congregation. Now, this is not about warning and telling off. This is not something which is meant to be some kind of personal affront to someone. And it certainly isn't that you haven't achieved a certain number of professional standards. This admonition, this getting alongside is intensely pastoral. 
That's why the early church leaders were called pastors, shepherds under the, they were under shepherds under the great shepherd. So admonishment is not about finger wagging and judging on a personal basis or professional critique of your Christianity. It's about being pastors to you. That's the job of leaders, whether it's anyone on the leadership team or whether it's someone who's your leader in a small group or a leader in a particular ministry that you're involved in in the church. So something was either not happening or not happening enough in Corinth, it's not Corinth, in Thessalonica, for Paul to have to write this. And so these t-shirts will be available at the end of the service. You think I'm joking? No, I'm joking. Needs a picture on it as well. I knew there was going to be heckles. Anyway, the thing is, respect your leader. This is so awkward to preach because it feels like, respect me. What I'm saying is you respect the office of leaders because they've been anointed and appointed to be your leaders. Yeah, it is awkward to preach it, but it's important to preach because it's the truth of what the Word of God says. Respect leaders. Acknowledge them. Hold them in high regard and live in peace. Now, this is more than just a plea of please be nice to us because we've got lots of leaders in this church. Notice that this is a plural word. It's like um, respect the leaders, those who work. This is not a one-person band, okay? This is not just the Lisa Holmes fan club we're talking about. We have a ministry team. We've got a staff team. We've got a whole... Uh, team of deacons. We've got teams that run different ministries. Last night, it was a joy to see the photograph of the Cap Christmas dinner. And believe me, there's tons of leaders involved in that that made it one of the most beautiful grace-filled events that, that Ruth was telling me about just earlier. And it's a respect for leaders that make those things kind of happen. Now, the two key things is we do not dismiss or undercut our leaders We do not backbite them. We do not gossip about them. We do not malign them. If you have an issue or some kind of problem, then you address it. You do not canvas public opinion against your leaders. That is the way that God has put it in place. I've heard some absolute horror stories of how some churches have treated their ministry team. Or their ministers. There's one horror story in particular in a church, not a not a hundred miles away from here, um, but not local, where after a number of acrimonious church meetings, where the pastor was being pummeled by certain members of the diaconate and the eldership, is that halfway through one church meeting, the pastor had a heart attack. Where is the respect in that? Where is it whenever a group galvanize around in order to, let's address the, the, the pastor. Let's talk about them in our small group behind their back. Please hear, this is not about pastors being untouchable. Because the opposite extreme is we do not overexalt our pastors and leaders. Because actually that's a burden too heavy to carry. We... Um, I was talking to a couple of friends who've been to some of the uh, churches over in Manchester, some of the black majority churches, and they know how to honor their leaders. Um, Rob and Marion White, who some of you might know, were talking about being, being ushered in kind of a private entrance and put on a special seat, and they had a driver who'd picked them up, and they were honored. I was at another church where the pastors were away, but the children were here, and, and the leader of the worship was saying, Kids, we love you, and we love you in the Lord, and we love your parents. It was quite embarrassing. Um, I did threaten my children to do that, but they did threaten to kill me. Um, 
But there was, okay, maybe that's an extreme, but there was something about honoring their leaders, their position, not their person. So here's a couple of things. We're told to live at peace with one another. Leader and led, pastor and pastored. And here's the thing. If you don't agree, if you have an issue or a problem with any of the leadership within this church or whatever church you are part of, address it. Go and speak to them. Do not canvas public opinion. Okay? Second thing. If you have an issue and you don't want to address it, leave it. Okay? Leave it. If you're not going to address it, if you're going to let it fester or if you're going to bring other people into it, if you're not going to leave it, then my friends, leave the church. Because too many churches have been destroyed by this. Too many lives have been destroyed. That's the importance of this. Remembering that the role of a leader, actually according to Scripture says, they will be judged more harshly. Jesus says, if you lead someone astray, you'll have a millstone around your neck and drown. That's how important it is, how significant it is. So look after them. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, the first part Paul was asking them, and he said, now we urge you, brothers and sisters, the Greek word is adelphoi, which actually means brothers and sisters, not just brothers, but it basically means family. Now I urge you, family, And this is the whole church. This is not just the leaders of the church. In fact, if you look in the book of Acts, in the very early stages of the book of Acts, the daily running, the everyday pastoral care and looking after people was done by the church and not the leadership. How different is that today? When we say, uh, I had 25 people come and minister to me, pray for me and meet with me, but the minister hasn't been, so therefore it wasn't done properly. We've actually heard that. The church looks after one another. That's what this says. The everydayness is the community looking after one another. The family looking after one another. And then we come together with these different people. It says, warn the unruly. That's a proper translation. Encourage the faint-hearted. And the last one is help the weak. This is all about... I'll go back one. It's all about what one writer said, the problem children in the family. (laughs) I don't know if you, if you agree with that or not. But let me see, let's go through them very quickly. First of all, it's translated the idle or the disruptive or the unruly. Actually, a better way of looking at it is the out of order. The one who's kind of out of kilter. Just out of, out of sorts. So for those who are just out of sorts, out of the way, warn them. Now that sounds like a carte blanche to go around going, right, who's out of sorts that I can warn? It's a much gentler, much more grace-filled word. This word warn is about comfort, consoling, getting alongside. Remember, whenever we have warning signs out on the streets, they're telling us where you could end up and that it might not be very good. It's not that you see a warning sign saying, you know, uh, dead end, 200 meters away, and before you get there, you go, whoa, I've sinned, I need a ticket. (laughs) It's a warning saying, if you go there, there's going to be a problem. It is driven by love and concern. It is not driven by judgmentalism. It's not driven by a sense of rightness and you're trying to sort out someone who's in the wrong. It is purely driven by love and care, relationship, and not some kind of sense of right. And sometimes we're not very good at this. We're not good at admonishing one another or challenging one another's behavior or uh, what's going on. If someone's slightly out of order. And that's why, that's the importance of small groups. And vulnerable and absolutely um, 
open small groups, discipleship groups, why we're encouraging you to find mentors and people who you could mentor as well. The prayer triplets initiative that Catherine and Esther are pushing through because it's so important to have those prayer partners, accountability partners, what to watch your back. Because sometimes you'll be the last person to know if you're out of order or out of kilter or off whack a little bit. And if you have someone who's close to you that says, listen, the way you're reacting at the moment, it's just not you. What am I? Okay, you've told me that you haven't read your Bible in six months. Not how dare you, but what's, what's going on? Listen, if that continues, you're going to be in difficulties. That is the understanding of warn the out of kilter. Those who are just off whack a little bit, who are just a bit way, um, wayside. Warn them because it's your responsibility. Watching your back. If someone comes to you and tells you that you're out of kilter and you don't really know them very well, don't necessarily be angry with them. Be angry with the people who are close to you who didn't do their job and tell you that you were out of kilter before a stranger did. That's family looking out for one another. We go on to the next bit, which says, encourage the faint-hearted, the disheartened, those who are timid, those who are frightened, maybe through circumstances, maybe through a battering of life or situations that they're just faint-hearted. The people in Thessalonica were being persecuted. They were worried about those who died and were they going to be in heaven when Jesus came back? They were worried and it was crippling them. So what are we told to do? Encourage. Put courage into them. Not just say giddy up, but get alongside them and give them courage. Give them reason to be courageous. It's linked to an Isaiah 42.3. It says, Jesus, he will not crush a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a flickering flame. Jesus cares for those who are just about hanging on there and we need to as well. And it moves on to helping the weak. Now, one writer suggests that this term weak was about those who were struggling in their faith or particularly struggling in the area of temptation and particularly sexual fidelity or sexual ethics. But I think it's a lot of places we talk about what our weaknesses are. Maybe it is a hidden sin, a temptation, a way of thinking, a manner in which we behave, a habit, whatever is our weakness. And what is the encouragement? Not to stand back and go, oh, that person's got that problem because every one of us have got weaknesses. So what is the antidote? Help them. Get alongside them. Be their crutch. I've been learning about crutches recently because I've needed them. And I have tried a few times to kind of go without a crutch whenever really I needed that little bit extra support and help. And at some point, my daughter or my wife or even Evelyn today are right and they say, here's the crutch, you need it. And the pride has to go when you hold on to it. We need to be helped in our weaknesses. We need to be prepared to help those in their weakness. It's a bit like the Good Samaritan story, isn't it? But so often we're not the Good Samaritan, we're the others who pass by thinking, that person's struggling, but it's not my job. It's, it's the minister's job, or it's their small group leader's job. It's not my job to help or encourage them. Actually, it is. Help the weak. And just in case you haven't got everything covered, then Paul fires in with, be patient with everybody. Yeah, there's a few raised eyebrows going, Seriously? Okay, it's even worse. The word patience actually means be long-suffering with everybody. In other words, this, this church family malarkey is not going to be straightforward. It's not going to be easy. People are going to wind you up. There's going to be people who vote conservative. 
There's going to be people who vote Labour. There's going to be people who vote UKIP. There's going to be people in this church that are going to vote for Monster Crazy Looney Party. There's going to be people who don't vote. There's going to be people who think that homosexuality is okay. There's going to be people who absolutely think it's completely contrary against God's will. And we are in the same family. So what have we got to do about that? Be long-suffering with each other. Don't write anyone off. No one gets written off. That's the intention. Sometimes we achieve it, sometimes we don't. As a church, as a leadership, but it's a church responsibility. There's a, a phrase within the military, particularly in the Marines, that says, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. If they're unruly and a bit out of kilter, if they're faint-hearted and they're just feeling a bit timid, if they're weak and they're just struggling, no one gets left behind. Let's take that on board. Can you imagine if we did? Not just going, someone over there will do it, but taking our responsibility to do it. Don't write anyone off. So here's a bit of a challenge for you. Is that all right? Do you mind? You're not agreeing, are you? (laughs) The challenge is this. He goes on to say, don't retaliate. (laughs) I love that picture. Don't retaliate. And we're very good at that. And, you know, within a, within a family, there's always sibling arguments and fallouts. But how about within church? Because we're awfully nice. Someone says something, maybe in passing, that you've taken offense at. We live in a culture of offense, don't we, today? I want to live in a culture of grace that thinks the best of people. But it's really hard when everyone tells you, be offended. But we might be offended. And our response might be the next time they come to us. They don't even know they've offended us. And they go, hiya! And you go, Hello. I'm not being nasty to you, but I'm not going to be nice either. Passive-aggressive Christians, seriously. I think I've got, I've, got, I've got a badge. Maybe you have as well. It's saying, don't. that's just another form of retaliation. Don't retaliate. Instead, what's Paul say? He says, look to bless. Look to bless. In the passage, it actually says here, it says, always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Pursue something that will bless people. My challenge to you is this. Can you today choose to bless someone in this very fellowship? Not because of a reason and not because of a season. Not because it's Christmas and you send them a card. Not because they've done a really good job. Just bless them. Today. Not some point this week. Today, because you'll forget otherwise. And if you are blessed out of blue by someone in the church, can you let me know? Because one, that will be a blessing to me, and also it will tell me that it's happening. Look to bless. Be proactive, not reactive. Look for opportunities to bless. It could be that you go up to someone and say, listen, the way that you were leading today, brilliant. The way that you served last night, fantastic. Thank you so much. By the way, I just want to say that every time that you're worshipping, it blesses my heart. Even though you're at the back of the, the, the congregation and you can't hold a tune in a bucket, you bless me. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone, I promise you. Part three. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances because that's God's will for you. Easy, eh? Because we are, as Christians, meant to be rejoicing always. We're meant to be continually happy, aren't we? Have, has anyone seen um, the series Friends? There's a character called Phoebe 
and she's gone out with this guy who just sees the best in everything. So he walks into, I don't know, someone's Christmas decorated house and goes, isn't the most marvelous Christmas tree in the world ever? They go, well, it's a bit enthusiastic. And he goes out the door and says, isn't this the most marvelous doorway ever? And she gets really annoyed by this. And so she says to him, stop being so positive. And he goes, but I'm just happy. I'm just really positive. And she goes, I want us to have a fight. And I'm like, okay, let's have a fight. So, so they have an argument over something really silly. And he storms out. A few moments later, there's a knock at the door. She opens the door, and it's him. And he says, wasn't that the most wonderful fight ever? <laughs> you know those kind of people who are just perpetually happy. We're not called to be happy. We're called to rejoice always. It is not a command to be happy. What it is from Paul is an invitation to worship, to have joy in the Lord. That's the invitation. This is to a church that's being persecuted. And if you want to know what joy looks like, you want to look at some of the worship that goes on in the persecuted church. Which even though their lives are at risk, they've got nothing else. They know joy. And they rejoice in the Lord always. We're then told we need to be praying continually. If you think praying is just talking to God, well, you're going to be pretty busy and not do anything else. It's more than talking to God. It's actually living a lifestyle of communication with God, thoroughly soaked in prayer. That's what this looks like. Not that we, we, we do three sets of prayers every day or twice on whatever. It's that our lives are soaked in prayer. Conversational prayer of praying and listening. Then we're told to give thanks in all circumstances. This is a tough one, isn't it? But notice what it says. It says, give thanks in every circumstance, not for every circumstance. Because there are some circumstances that really you cannot give thanks for. But you can give thanks for the fact the Lord is with you in it. We can be thankful in the situation. And it is not easy. It needs a choosing, a realigning of our perspective and our views alongside God's. That's why it says this is God's will for you in Christ to have this aligned thinking with his spirit. And so we move on to the spirit. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to whatever is good. Holy Spirit, I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, if, if the Holy Spirit left the early church at Pentecost, 90% of it would have disappeared. If the Holy Spirit left the church today, 90% of it might remain. Now, I don't know if that's fair or not. I kind of sense that we have become less reliant on the Holy Spirit. We need form, yes, but we also need freedom. And the it is possible to quench the Holy Spirit. It's possible to extinguish it. It's possible to get in the way of the Holy Spirit, to feel a moving of the Spirit and to dampen it, to put it down. And this is what was happening because the, the Greek actually says, not do not quench, but stop quenching the Holy Spirit. Stop extinguishing the Spirit's fire. Can we hand on heart say that we've, we've never done that? And it says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Well, one extreme is extinguishing but the other extreme is to exaggerate. If anyone stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, you go, Oh, it must be true then. No, not necessarily. We need to test everything. This is about prophecy, it's not about an utterance for the future, but about the ministry of God's word in the here and now. It's about what is God saying to this situation. In fact, we need prophetic teaching and preaching in our churches today more and more, if ever. 
And good preaching, I would say, effective and life-transforming preaching and teaching is in itself prophetic. It needs to be. But the danger is not extinguishing, but sometimes exaggerating the Holy Spirit. Okay? Sometimes it's an anything-goes kind of routine. And the early church had this as well, a group called the Montanists. They were absolutely wacky. They were the first Pentecostalists. But they took it a bit too far. And some people even today say, well, the Holy Spirit stuff is a bit over-emotional. Or maybe we say, if anyone says God is saying, we have to believe it. Actually, we are told not to extinguish or exaggerate. We're told to examine and experience. And I promise you, it will come up on the PowerPoint in a few moments when Peter works it out. (laughs) And how we do this, we want to be a prophetic church. And how we do this, we will test words and pictures and prophecies. So what happens is that if you have a word or a picture or something in the middle of a service, you come and you check it out with someone at the front. There is no right, automatic right. No matter how long you've been here or how fresh your experience of the Holy Spirit is, you don't have an automatic right to stand up here and speak. It needs to be tested. And it has to be tested across a number of different things. And these are the ways that we're encouraged to attest. Does a prophetic word, does it match up with Scripture? And the whole witness of Scripture, is it consistent with it? The people in Berea, when they heard Paul, they went and checked the Scriptures to see if he was right. Is it consistent with the nature and character of Jesus? Is it consistent with the essence of the gospel? It is full of grace. What about the fruit of the life of the person who's sharing. Is the person who's sharing it a person who is trusted to share? Or is it a complete stranger who, if they are given a microphone, could be there for days doing untold damage? And the next one, which isn't coming up just yet, is, is the word building up? Is it loving? Is it grace-filled? Is it challenging, but with the ultimate aim of building up to this place of sanctification? And is it the last one, which again hasn't come up, is there's fruit, there's build-up, discernment there is a gift to discern so if you please if you feel you have a word a picture a, a, a word from God come and test it. don't be afraid to come and test it because we want to share what God's doing and we will hold on as it says in scripture here hold on tight to what is good and we will reject what is evil so we finish off with this last section 23 to 28 This is Paul's prayer. It's an echo of a prayer from chapter 3. That the aim of all of this is sanctification. Jesus is coming back. Be it 20 minutes or 20 months. 20 centuries or 20 seconds. Paul's prayer is that they would be sanctified through and through. I want to ask you, can you hand on heart say that you are holy? If I looked at you and I say, do you consider yourself holy? I would say, no, I don't. Too often I slip up. Are you wanting to become holy? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And what's God's promise? It says he is faithful and he will do it, but he'll do it alongside us. Christ died. But in the meantime, what will you do while you're waiting? Do will you seek to become holy and follow these rules as guides to become the people God wants us to be? To bring heaven to earth, 
to be so transformed to be like Jesus that you are achieving Paul's prayer of being sanctified. What will you do while you're waiting? Amen.